0: Mostly dedicated to this podcast. As you all know, it's almost the one year anniversary. Next week will be the one year anniversary episode. So look forward to that. And what can I say other than thank you for being part of this journey. I was very, very nervous when I set out to do this podcast. It was a deeply personal challenge for myself. And I overcame against all odds And those odds were nothing but myself and self-doubt and fear and self-questioning and all that shit. But what have we learned? What have I learned? I learned that that's just how I go. That's just how I go about doing things. Whenever I create anything new, it just comes with all that self-doubt and self-questioning. Not always, you know, I mean... Yeah, no, actually, always. I always have that. And I always somehow persevere and I overcome. And that's the only way to overcome your fears. It's just to do it, just to do the actual thing that is freaking you the fuck out. Because once you start doing it, you're just in it and there's nothing to be afraid of because you're just part of that thing. You're in the process of being the thing that you were afraid of becoming, but you're in the in the fucking thing you're just doing it you are so what is there to be afraid of nothing nothing time and time again that's always the answer this past year i completed my doctoral dissertation as you all know i had four job interviews i got on unemployment and food stamps i started writing my second novel that's a thing. I was going to write the K-Drama School book, but I stopped and it is now going to be on my website, kdramaschool.com. I'm going to call it the K-Drama Notebook and the introduction is already up there. So you guys can access that right now for free. So go to kdramaschool.com or go to kdramaschool.com slash notebook. I think that's the, I think that's the address. If not, just go to kdramaschool.com, look for K-Drama School Notebook, and click on it, and you're going to see my introduction there. How lucky are you? You're very lucky. <laughs> but thank you for listening. Thank you for reading. Thank you for writing to me. Thank you for supporting. If you have not subscribed to the YouTube channel, please subscribe. I still don't have 100 subscribers on that. And um, honestly, it's making me feel like kind of a loser. Uh but thank you for following me on social media. The social medias are doing somewhat better than the YouTube sus- subscription, so that is a plus, and I am really uh, happy to be doing this with all of you guys, uh, so thank you. Today's drama is called The King's Affection, Yeun Mo. It is a KBS drama, which is based on a webtoon written and illustrated by Yi So-young, and it stars... Park Eun Bin and Rohun. Park Eun Bin, you've all seen in Hello My 20s, the JTBC drama, which has two seasons, and she played the very happy, peppy, friendly Song Chi Won. Right, I think she was like a journalist major or something on that show, and uh, she's on both seasons. Um, and I, I loved Park Eun Bin on that drama. I think she was my favorite character. I just loved her energy. I loved her her style, her wit her movements, her gestures, she's remarkable. Uh Park bin has a very long career that dates back to the late 1990s. She started out as a child actress and her debut TV role was back in 1998 on an SBS drama that stars Yi Byung-hun, Shim Eun-ha and Choi Min-soo. It's called White Knights 3.98 or Pegya. Which is about Korean Air Force pilots and Pagan bin was just six years old on that show. She played one of the characters' daughter. She was in quite a few period pieces like Empress Myeongseong, Age of Warriors, Queen Sondak, and The Iron Empress. She was also on that show Ho-jun, which was immensely popular. Came out in 2013. Park eun was in some romantic Korean dramas I saw when I was growing up back in the day, like Guardian Angel, My Love Pachi, and Glass Slippers. So she was always like the, the young child actor on all these shows. She has a very robust career in film and television, mostly TV, and she played the lead in Do You Like Brahms?, the K-drama that came out in the year 2020, opposite Kim Min-jae. Roone plays a role that is really fascinating. He plays the Lady King's love interest on this drama. And if you're a K-pop fan, you absolutely know who Roone is. He's the lead vocalist of SF9. And I was really impressed with Roon's acting chops on the King's affection because he really brought it. He brings charisma. He brings intensity. He brings depth. You know, he brings a lot to such a complex character, such a devoted character to the king. This show started out a bit slow for me, and it took me a few weeks to catch up and then binge the rest. But this trope of gender crossing or gender play in Korean dramas is not at all a new thing, as we all know, for listeners of this podcast. We all know that this is a gimmick. It's a trope. And women dressing up to pass as men in historical Korean dramas is also very common. In fact, our beloved Son Ye-jin, who we all know from Crash Landing on You and Something in the Rain, she played a woman passing for a man in a historical drama called Great Ambition that aired back in 2002 with Yeowon, Jang Hyuk, and Han jae And we've seen gender crossing, of course, in the very famous, very beloved program, Coffee Prince, right, with Gong Yu. But what makes Tammy? on the King's Affection so unique is her character's transgender queerness, which I'll explain here. In the book, Camp TV, which is written by Quinlan Miller, this term transgender queer is a theory. It's a concept that Miller defines as, I quote, as a multiplicitous switch point between trans and queer. So I think trans queerness is applicable in Tammy's case because Tammy doesn't identify as a trans man, but she does embody a man and performs male duties as a king. And she attracts a man with her manhood. And she attracts a woman with her manhood and womanhood. See, so Tommy's so queerness as a king has a multiplicitous function across genders. And when Tami marries the queen and later reveals her true identity as a woman, the queen continues to retain her love and affection and devotion for Tami, despite Tami being a woman. All this is to say that the king's affection is a show that is a very fertile ground for reading through a queer theory lens. The King's Affection is also an incisive critique of patriarchal greed and power and and the ends that a patriarchal head will go in order to retain said power, going so far as killing his own grandchildren. The king's affection is a historical fiction. It's not based on any real king in the chosen dynasty or whichever dynasty this was. I believe it's the chosen dynasty though. But the queer relationships in ancient Korea are very well documented in actual history. You can read about some of that in my article on Jump Cut. I discussed some of these queer relations that took place in the palace way back in the day, particularly between the king and his protectors, his military, his, his, his defense, basically. As with any society at any time, though, queerness was always present, even if it was hidden away or repressed. Queerness persisted and existed no matter what. I think this show honors that queer history in some way because although it doesn't end with a a queer relationship, you know, it does end with this heteronormative ending, it does kind of gesture that this was this potentiality back in the day, that this most likely would have happened in some circumstances, right? So it's sort of this uh, imagined projection onto past history with a queer vision. Even still, I liked Roon's character uh, because he displayed physical and emotional affection for Tami even when he didn't know that Tami was a woman. And I think these moments can be read as positive moments for queer Korean TV history. Today's guest is Liam McEnany. He's a veteran stand-up comic from New York. He now lives in LA and he is such a cinephile. He is now a filmmaker, and we go real deep into movies on this podcast, all kinds of movies from all around the world, from all different eras, from all different auteurs. We go deep into literature. We go deep into music. We talk about history and politics and culture and all kinds of fun and brainy stuff. It's a blast. It's a long one. Let's talk to Leah macanini
1: actually uh i'm extremely tired i got five hours sleep last night so uh oh, i had to finish editing a project for school that was two months overdue so oh fuck. yeah it's entirely my fault oh thank yeah, you i'm you actually it. yeah i'm pretty happy with how it turned out so uh yeah yeah
0: that's good that's an excellent feeling man to finish something and then be happy with the product that's like what more can you ask for
1: well, I'm pretty great, so... I'm used yeah. to that feeling. Everything yeah. I do is wonderful, and I'm very proud of everything I've ever done, so, uh...
0: Wow, you're like a really, um, great father to yourself. <laughs> you know? You're like the father that every boy deserves, you know? but to and,
1: yourself. and every young woman.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And every young non-gender binary.
1: Uh, Okay. Sure. <laughs> well, in that case, you have to talk about how uh, there's gender-neutral parenting.
0: Oh.
1: And non-traditional parenting.
0: Oh yeah. That's
1: this is going to be a, a great podcast. I can yeah, feel it.
0: It's going to be about Let's parenting. just go
1: through every variation: thruples and all of it. Divorced parents who are still partners to be yeah divorced parents. parents
0: who get divorced and then they both transition into the opposite gender and then they get back together like has that, that happened? I don't know, but I feel like i feel I'm sure it has happened somewhere in the universe, and I'm sure this American life wants to cover that story like I'm pretty sure and grace yes.
1: I, I feel like I'm listening to your Sundance lab pitch right now.
0: Ah, that's a pretty good lab pitch, huh?
1: Yeah, it is. Actually, they would take that in a heartbeat.
0: I think so, too. I think it'll do better than The Farewell ever did. Yeah.
1: What's The Farewell?
0: It's that uh, movie that... Actually, I think it was a pitch at Sundance lab works. Um, What's her face? Shit. Her story was in uh, NPR's This American Life. And then that story became a film. And that Uh film stars Aquafina basically it's about uh, a granddaughter who has a grandmother who has terminal cancer but that grandmother doesn't speak any English so when she goes into the doctor's office like the children so this granddaughter's parents they and uncles they hear the doctor saying yeah this woman's gonna die but instead of telling the grandmother that she's gonna die of terminal cancer they just don't tell her and they just keep living life like as it is and guess what she never dies like she sticks around
1: (laughs) Wow, well, that movie sounds like a real fucking downer for most of it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I never watched it. I only listened to the, the NPR thing just because oh. it was on. And then I was like, I already know the story. Uh, it just sounds really traumatic. I don't think I could handle it right now.
1: I just saw a trailer. Uh, speaking of movies that Aquafina was almost in, but then she couldn't do it. Uh-huh. But Michelle Yeoh's in a new movie uh-huh. with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Whoa. And uh, fucking, it's kind of an all-star cast. It's uh, it's about so Michelle Yeoh is like an ordinary woman uh-huh. who reaches, I guess, a, a breaking point, point. Uh-huh. and then suddenly she slips into all these different multiple universes.
0: Oh my god!
1: And it's it looks, dude. You got to find the trailers from A twenty four. Okay. And it's directed by this team called the Daniels because it's Whoa. two dudes named Dan.
0: Oh my god! This already sounds like wow.
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, I just I, like I said, I just watched the trailer. It looks great.
0: Sounds like a like a millennial Gen Z fever dream, you know. It's like, and the dude who
1: played Short Round is in it. Short Round. From Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom.
0: Oh shit! Wow. I
1: didn't shit. know that guy was still acting. <laughs> he plays Michelle Yeoh's husband.
0: I mean yeah you know we're we're here aren't we here to we're in it to win it aren't we and th- that guy is in <laughs> it to win it okay he is clinging on all right well
1: that's the thing about the business right it's are we recording is this
0: mm-hmm. yeah okay
1: so it's happened uh i saw i remember once the first time i visited la i went to whole foods the oh. one on la brea and santa monica i think it is okay
0: wow the
1: and uh and I saw a woman from a movie that uh, that I used to like when I was younger yeah. work in the register.
0: Whoa.
1: And I was like, holy shit. She was like the lead, the female lead in that movie. What I mean movie she was, is this. Uh, well, I don't I don't know if I wanna
0: Who cares to say it?
1: Oh uh, nobody's gonna listen to this. Uh, Tommy Boy. <laughs> so she played like uh she played like the the like uh what's his name's Love Interest in that movie.
0: Oh wow and she's a cashier at Whole Foods
1: she was I mean but that's the thing right like uh, what's his name who played Elvin on the Cosby show was a, was a, was working at um, Trader Joe's in Newark and it blew up all over the internet because people were just like wow look yeah. at this he used to be famous now look at him now
0: yeah well that's the thing about acting is that you just don't know you just never fucking know right it's like yeah okay you could be in a hit movie you could be in a hit tv show but who's to say that that's forever it's never forever it's very temporal
1: yeah i mean that's why all this shit pays so well right because like you could have a writing job and make seventy five thousand dollars for six months work Mm -hmm. but then you're out of work for 18 months and you have to live off that
0: yeah exactly exactly it's really it's not all glitz and glamour it's a lot of like Waiting around, hoping, you know, reading tarot cards every fucking day, you know, writing manifestations in the book. <laughs> Are you Are making you... the movie that you want to see?
1: I did. I I did this short film. I'll send you a link when we're done. It's four yeah. it's four and a half minutes. It's three minutes plus two minutes of credits. Um
0: Let's see it. I'm interested. Yeah. But it's
1: like just like a like a goofy action thing. Okay. Uh, and I was just like, you know, I love action comedies. I fucking like think what? that. Oh, the Lethal what? Weapon movies. Uh, oh. Yeah. You know, Um, I just watched actually. Uh, what did I watch? I just got a. Fuck. I'm watching a lot of stuff right now.
0: Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz sounds like a goofy action movie.
1: Hot Fuzz is great. Um hmm you know, it's I, I like Edgar Wright a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to see I was at a festival ten years ago and I went to see um Attack the Block just because Edgar Wright was had was an executive producer and he was gonna be there to give a talk back at the oh, wow. at the draft You're house.
0: Diehard
1: fan. Not a diehard fan, but I was like, what a great opportunity to fucking maybe ask him a question. I didn't get to. Yeah. Oh. Uh but uh but attack the block I was like uh, South by Southwest. Oh,
0: uh, yeah. Very rare nice. days.
1: Yeah. And then I also saw a movie called Hobo with a Shotgun. Oh, which, nice title. Yeah. <laughs> which was, uh, it was like, uh, this guy had won the Grindhouse trailer contest. Uh huh. Do you remember when, uh, Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez did Grindhouse?
0: No, but.
1: Alright, so Ro- Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez did, uh, did a, joint project called Grindhouse. Okay. And they basically both made two low-budget action films. And they released it together, and then they got friends like Eli Roth to make fake trailers for for other, like, uh, Grindhouse-type movies. Okay. And they had a a contest where where fans could make a trailer, and the winning trailer uh, was put into the movie. Ah.
0: Okay. Yes, yes, yes.
1: And so this dude made a trailer called hobo with a shotgun and it got into the grindhouse movie and that got him funding to make the whole film. Um, is this guy
0: it, a comic?
1: I don't know. I've never heard of him since then. Well, <laughs> okay. Like he just I'm seems right. to have disappeared. No, no, it's all right. I mean, it, this is pretty yeah, much the yeah. end of the story. So I went <laughs> to see this. It. So it's like Rutger Hauer plays a hobo who wanders around shooting people. Uh-huh. Um, and it was fucking great. Cause it was just this like dumb, low budget Rutger Hauer movie. Uh-huh. Uh, playing at a wow. big prestigious festival.
0: Yeah. Um, I love that. That's sort of what makes festivals fun, like film festivals really fun. Like, because you get to see things that you would never, ever be able to see anywhere else, like short films, like trailers. Right. You know, these are productions that. Full on productions. Making any film, whether it's three minutes or three hours, it's a lot of fucking work. It kicks your ass. And. Being able to showcase them at a festival, it's like marvelous for everybody.
1: Yeah. So, but anyway, so I like I like action movies. Lethal Weapon, Hot Fuzz.
2: Hmm. Uh,
1: you know I, I'm not a big Marvel fan, mm-hmm. but I did like Shang Chi and the and the Legend of the Ten Rings. I watched that last week.
2: Oh, I you, didn't see that yet.
1: You should. You know what's interesting oh. about action movies, is. Yeah, and this is this is a movie that gets it right, there's a lot of action movies that get this wrong, is uh-huh. that uh, um, fight scenes, right? Yeah. They can be gratuitous and mindless and fun to watch. But in an action I, movie... I
0: always skip past them. I'm just like, click, 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 I skip past them.
1: But in an action movie, like a good one, where the director and the writer and the producers, like everybody knows what they're doing,
0: uh-huh. right?
1: It should... Um, a, f- a good fight scene will accomplish two of three things. One okay. is, because they're like, they're kind of like, if you ever watch a Jackie Chan or a Bruce Lee movie or, um, or, uh, God, what else? Um, Just any martial the, arts films? Like Hong like,
0: Kong films and shit like that?
1: Yeah, but, uh, but what's the one that Ang Lee did? Uh, House. Oh,
0: Crouching Tiger?
1: Crouching Tiger, right? So, it's a
0: really good movie. Yeah.
1: It's a great movie. Speaking of Michelle Yeoh, uh, yeah. But uh, but the fight scenes should, they're like, they're like the songs in a musical, right? Yes. Where they're not just there. They, ha- they yeah. should have a purpose. Mm-hmm. And they should they either, yes. yeah. And, and it's like there's three things, that, three things that a fight scene can accomplish, and they should accomplish two of them. Uh, yeah. One of them is to reveal character. Uh-huh. The second is to advance story. And the third is to make you feel like everybody involved is in danger of getting hurt. Right, uh-huh. and so, like a lot of Marvel movies don't accomplish any of that, uh, especially the thing about like being about feeling like uh, you know the 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 characters are in danger because it's all just cartoons drawn on a computer. Have um, you seen that
0: movie The Raid?
1: The Raid. What's that?
0: Okay, just to, sorry to interrupt you, but very quickly it's an no, Indone- no no, go ahead. it's an Indonesian action film. And uh-huh. it's basically like the the action and fight scenes are so well coordinated that people just watch this movie because of for that reason. It's like it's like watching like martial arts movies from like Hong Kong and 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 shit like that. But this is from Indonesia. Like, okay. it it was such a it was like just like a very small B movie like art house kind of indie flavor. But it was like a massive success, and then uh, there's a production company here in Hollywood that made a sequel to that they made raid two Redemption because like it was so fucking
2: I heard of such that a, one yeah
0: hugely popular thing but yeah, if you love action films, maybe I'll, the raid maybe you could add that to your roster.
1: I made a note of it. The other thing I've been watching lately is just. Uh, new wave films from the sixties, like Italian, uh French, Czechoslovakian, like Trumont, all these movies. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like it's all these movies I'd never watched when I was younger. Um
0: like the cause... Cinephile films, the classic Cinephile films. The ones where the film geeks at NYU with their beanies <laughs> like to talk about you know, smoking a cigarette outside on broadway or to where the fuck right you know? yeah yeah so
1: funny i you know i didn't i didn't really go to college um so i had the opposite experience where where i grew up it was like people really looked down on those movies and mm-hmm. like really just like it was mm-hmm. a weird lower middle class snobbery whereas like the yeah. real movies are the ones that are entertaining that people love to watch that make right. a lot of money right and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I mean, it's like neither yeah. one of those kinds of movies is terrible, but I
0: agree.
1: but it's like I feel like I've been robbed a little bit because I started watching Agnes Varda movies, and oh, she's yeah, fucking yeah. amazing.
0: Oh yeah, she's fucking next level. Yeah, like
1: like she makes it look effortless. She does these like yeah. character studies that just. Uh, that just kind of like defined a way a certain cinema was shot. I'm learning, you know, mm.
0: she has an eye. She has a definite eye and she has a feel like she has an extra sensory feeler for that. I think that's what makes her unique and stand out. I mean, she's like a true artist. Yeah.
1: She she was like a yeah. vagabond blew my mind. Mm. Mm. If you if, if you have a listener and they don't know what Vagabond is, um it's uh, it's this movie about just a young woman who uh, just wanders around the French countryside not doing much of anything and refusing yeah. to do any work or anything like that. And like a big lot of the like the big Lebowski, except she dies in the end in a ditch.
0: <laughs> of course. Right. Of course.
1: Whereas uh, the dude's life just literally never changes from beginning to end.
0: Exactly the same. Except he loses Donnie.
1: (laughs) He loses Donnie. But it doesn't affect him much, ultimately.
0: He still goes and bowls, yeah.
1: He still gets high and and bowls and... And
0: and he abides. And he
1: talks to God and, you know, like... uh,
0: I really love The Big Lebowski. It's like that's you know when people ask me like oh you have a PhD in film and media studies What's your favorite movie I say the big Lebowski and they're like what <laughs> it's like they get thrown off and I'm like I'm like to me that movie's poetry
1: <laughs> I agree it's a great movie but what makes it like your favorite like what puts it above all the other movies you like
0: I I really can't explain it it's like um, when I was 19 years old I was living in I was living in Inwood, like tip top of Manhattan with uh-huh. a roommate. She was going to NYU at the time. Her boyfriend at the time was at NYU Tisch studying filmmaking. And he actually went on to become a sound recordist for uh, um, Chloe Zhao's film, the one that she won an Oscar for Nomadland.
1: A uh, Nomadland. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. And then, and this guy, this poor kid. What did you think away. of that? i love nomadland i think it's like such a beautiful and eloquent movie Mm -hmm. and she's she's working with non-actors like people on the site who are speaking from their lived experience so there's no mediated acting mental none of that it's all just so pure but a lot of those were
1: people from the book that the movie was based on
0: Yes, yes, yes. So yes. she
1: just cast them as themselves, which doesn't always yeah. work.
0: It doesn't always work, but... And, you know, she's not the first filmmaker to do this. I mean, Fellini did this all the time. Fucking Sean Baker, he does it all the time. The guy who did Tangerine. Varda? He does it all the time. Yeah, th- so I, that I love that kind of realism. I mean, that mm-hmm. kind of cinematic realism where this documentary sort of element... Like just sort of folds into the narrative so beautifully. Like I am so down with that. I love mm-hmm. that kind of filmmaking. Um, but uh anyway, Agnes had her name oh my god, my <laughs> synchronicity. my ex- roommate, her name was Agnes Agnes oh, okay. had she had um an, like another friend of hers uh, from Japan staying at like couch surfing. And this fucking guy, he's, like, super fucking rich, and he was couch surfing for, like, two months, this piece of shit, right? Mm -hmm. But he was buying a lot of movies. Like, Blockbuster was still in business, so they would have the bins, like, where you would sell, like, $5 DVDs or $10 DVDs. And Agnes brought home The Big Lebowski, and Mm -hmm. she was just watching it with her friend. And I and I just came home from school and I just I was just kind of standing watching this and I could not stop laughing. I was like shitting mm. my pants, crying, laughing. Nobody else was laughing. Nope. I was like, how are you not laughing? I was dying. And then Agnes was like, I'm I'm impressed that you find this movie so funny. And I'm like, I'm like, how can you not find it funny? It was just like this like soul match kind of moment, right? Right. And I'm like 19. And I was like, can I? Do you mind if I rewatch this movie? And she's like, yeah, go ahead. I rewatched The Big Lebowski every single day for the next 30 days of that month. Uh And to this day, I still rewatch The Big Lebowski at least like twice a year, every single year. I just love this movie so much. I think it's comedically hilarious. I think it's cosmically hilarious. I think the way that they use the word fuck in that movie is like poetic. It's poetic Mm -hmm. how well they use it. I think uh Jeff Bridges is astounding in that movie. Yeah. I think Steve Buscemi and John Goodman they're astounding in this movie. I, everybody was just so good. I don't know. T- for me it's like a perfect film. It just it matches my soul identity in some way. I think that's what it is. I I can't explain it in any, any other way than that.
1: That's interesting. You know, I had I saw it when it came out in the theater. Um and I—I I mean, I was a big Cohen Brothers fan by that point because, yeah. uh, like, I was shocked when I found out later that *The Hudsucker Proxy* is unpopular. Because to me, that's just a great, great piece of filmmaking.
0: I haven't even um, heard of that movie, honestly.
1: You haven't heard of *The Hudsucker Proxy*? I'm no. not surprised. Nobody but me liked it. It starred Paul Newman. They—it was a collaboration with Sam Raimi of all people, right? So and this, is Coen's this is a
0: Cohen's film. Is it Cohen Brothers movie?
1: This is a Cohen movie. He, uh, But Ramey, like, wrote and produced it with them. Uh, oh, okay, so they
0: didn't so, write
1: it. Oh, they did. But oh, he, they did write it. Yeah, they did. They wrote and directed it. But, like, Sam Ramey co-wrote and co-produced it with them. Fascinating. Uh, so it's got Bruce Campbell in it, right? So, like... Uh, but it's wow. got like these some great like Ramey touches that they don't have in a lot of their other movies, like the Dutch angles mm-hmm. and and all that stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's got Tim Robbins, and he's a young man who may, who gets to the big city at some mm-hmm. point in history when everything is Art Deco, and mm-hmm. Paul Newman plays like a big. It's kind of a precursor to the Big Lebowski. Uh, Shit. You know it's uh. It is another what they call magical Negro movie, um, because there's a total What's magical. That? You never heard of a magical Negro trope? No. Oh my God! It's.
0: <laughs> Are you sure
1: you went to UCLA? Yeah. Uh, it's I'm based... sure
0: I can. I'm sure I could understand the concept if you just explain it. I'm sure oh yeah, no, of course. Concept. It... I just don't know those. This expression.
1: Oh, it's just basically all these movies that were made, especially in the 90s, were like uh, like a movie like The Legend of Bagger Vance or mm-hmm. uh, The Green Mile, where it's like mm-hmm. the black character okay. is there to literally magically solve every white person's problem.
2: Right,
0: uh, right, right. Like so, Nicolas Cage's Family Man. With yes, exact, yeah, yes, exactly, got exactly, Exactly. right? Or, or Morgan Freeman in uh, Bruce Almighty.
1: Or any other Morgan Freeman movie. Um <laughs>
0: Yeah, okay. Fully understand. Right,
1: so okay. it's like, so it's like they wouldn't do this today, but the Hudsucker Proxy does have a magical black janitor who saves, uh. stops time and saves the day at the end of the movie. Yeah. But in every other way, it's a pure delight. Like mm. I, I won't even say anymore because there's like a big plot twist that's actually incredibly funny and delightful in that like Coen Brothers way. Mm. Um but uh but also well, I went to see the Big Lebowski in the theater and I had what like what was a common experience to a lot of people it's like really weird to talk to someone who's kind of always lived in a world where everyone knows the Big Lebowski right mm. because it's like
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's just such an offbeat movie that it's a
0: flop in the box office a huge tanked.
1: flop i hated mm. it the first time i saw yeah. it yeah it was confusing. a lot of people, it's a
0: polarizing movie a lot of people hate yeah. that movie yeah yeah
1: and then my friend Chris Regan, who's a great who's uh, today is a very great successful comedy writer uh said no you got to watch it a second time and like he's like because you're gonna hate it the first time and love it the second time
0: and I then I watched the it the second one.
1: time well you're well, you know that's why you have a phd in film studies <laughs> um but it, but it was like because it's just like it doesn't really follow a lot of the beats of a movie that you're expecting, but it comes across as a movie that is gonna. And (laughs) so the first time when that detective like approaches him in his car, when he's just like trying to smoke weed and has that whole conversation about fellow Seamus and then (laughs) that guy's never in the movie again. And you're like, where did that guy go? Uh, I didn't get that. I didn't get any of it. He's
0: been following him. He's been following him. Right. All throughout. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I still don't Uh, entirely understand what that scene is about, but I, uh, I got it the second time, and I've seen it like 50 times already.
0: It's like about incompetence, mostly, you know, like it's about America having a promise and they they, that they're just failing to meet that promise time and time again with everything. When it comes to police work, when it comes to P.I. work, when it comes to detective work, when it comes to economics, when it comes to war, you know, when it comes to democracy and freedom. Right. I mean, talk about uh, war in the Middle East in that movie. I mean, that's like the beginning of that movie. Right. Right. This aggression will not stand against kuwait right and it gets called back
1: over and over
0: over and over and and you have a vietnam war veteran in that movie john goodman right and Mm -hmm. and he's like shell-shocked but he's also all about justice all throughout you know he i mean he fought in vietnam but he says things like like don't use the word chinaman asian american please you know right not the preferred nomenclature and then you have like a korean war veteran i mean people forget like these wars the korean war and the vietnam war they were america they were america's failures you know because like america thought okay after world war ii no more war man we're like living free you know quaint Uh, 1950 suburban life but it's like 1950s Korea was being blown up you know Mm -hmm. and all the defense uh, militarism and military spending that shit really expanded during the Korean War that's what people don't realize and that massive military spending defense budget that's the reason why we have Vietnam War, that's why we have war in the Middle East, okay? Like people don't understand like that just keeps going. So um, it's um, it's about America's failures and America's lies and these incompetence trying to function while holding their own ideologies, you know? And and just struggling with coming to terms with the fact that they're all incompetent in the society.
1: That's really interesting and the whole like landlord thing slots into that too.
0: Oh my god! It was just yeah,
1: so fucking funny, but also like
0: so good, so good. The way he asks, you know, he's like, he's like, dude, it's you know, right, right. It's like it's the third or whatever, and he's like, far out. <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> it's like you could just slip the rent check under my door. He's like, oh, 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 yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Even when like the dude is like, when he's buying milk and he's writing out fifty three cents in a check. Yeah like you know Ralph's, Ralph's, like like uh, so many moments like that it's it's just like revealing about what america is you know and this guy being a broke piece of shit like he still loves drinking uh you know the fucking white russians and he still likes smoking pot and you know he still likes these simple luxuries like going bowling regularly you know living Mm -hmm. trying to live a free life you know in his circumstances it's, and i i find that beautiful honestly
1: you know and it's yeah. a very like very very in la movie um yeah, you know i moved to hollywood and western when i first moved here and wow. i lived a block from what i call scumbag ralph's because it's just like every scumbag yeah. in hollywood goes to shoplift there Yeah, uh, yeah yeah and the first time i was there one in the morning doing some grocery shopping I was like, holy shit, the, this is the Big Lebowski? Like, this is real. Like, <laughs> There's just people like that in this town who fucking go to grocery shopping and one in the morning half drunk and in their bathrobe yeah. or whatever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, I kind of like that grimy L.A. look, you know, because <clears> – <throat> And he's – sort of um, juxtaposed against Jackie Treehorn, right? Like this guy in fucking Malibu with like his, you know, penthouse and all this shit, like with the naked chicks and all that. But this guy, like, you know, he's just a money grubbing bastard, right? Like he doesn't care about anything. He just wants money. And actually that's one thing you could see thematically throughout every single Coen Brothers movie. And I'm pretty sure it's in this film that you mentioned, the one that I'm not familiar with, too. But every single movie, it's about money. Like, money is the thing, the driving force. Yeah. Every single Coen Brothers movie is essentially a critique of money and its dehumanizing and problematic factors.
1: Well, the the Hudsucker proxy, business, there's literally the gears of business that run the world. Like, that's mm. kind of like the central theme of, of the movie is just like yeah. the entire yeah. world literally runs around, literally revolves around the, the gears of business that, uh, that inside the hudsucker building.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, and it, it starts it. with the CEO of a huge corporation just deciding one day to jump out of a window and kill himself in the middle of a board meeting.
0: Right. Mm, that's very Coen Brothers-esque, like sudden suicide. Oh, it is. It could like. Yeah, yeah. But I think
1: I think my favorite of their movies is Raising Arizona. Still,
0: oh, I love w- that movie. I love it, that movie.
1: That's a movie my dad just took home from the video store because we all liked John Goodman as a family. Because of Roseanne, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and um, yeah, you know, back when, back when we could laugh with Roseanne. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah. uh, so he brought home Raising Arizona, and it was like, holy shit! I didn't know movies like that were made. I didn't have my mind blown like that again until like one night, I, like I started watching Mystery Train on Cinemax, which is this mm. great Jim Jarmusch movie. Love uh, Jim
0: Jarmusch. Love which Jim Jarmusch.
1: Is, I do too.
0: Um, I am upset. Can I tell you something? Yeah. I so Sarah Driver has a movie, I think in Sundance right now, about the making of Stranger Than Paradise. Really? So Jarmusch's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about like the <clears throat> all the things that they had to go through in order to make that movie happen because they were these like NYC scallywags, you know, like um they were the fucking eighties hipster punks of the New right. York streets. Sarah Driver, her Sister Martha Driver was my professor at Pace University. And I was like a diehard Jarmish fan since like all throughout my 20s. And uh, Martha Driver was like, if you want, you could write a letter to Jim. Like I have his um, production house address. So I wrote him like uh-huh. a typewriter typed letter that I hand signed later. And um, his assistant emailed me back.
1: <laughs> oh, really? To
0: be like. Jim got your letter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but but he
1: never sent a response?
0: No. But a Rude. year later, I met I met Jim Jarmusch in person. And uh-huh. he was so nice. Like, we right. got to talk a little bit. And I was just, I'm so happy that I met him and that he was an awesome person in person, too. Because he was just, like, down and he was cool. I, like, Jarmusch is, like, up there for me. He's, like, one yeah. of my favorite filmmakers of all time.
2: Yeah, I don't. I don't but know.
0: Anyway, if yeah, mystery train. I don't know if I'm yeah, ready so to crazy. be
1: like at an age where the yeah. the hip edgy movie from from my childhood now has a biopic about it making the
0: rounds. Really? Because that was like such a, that's such a. It's mostly about Sarah Driver, but.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was just yeah. like such. It was such a uh, underground thing, where if you yep. knew about it, you were cool, and most mm. people didn't know about it
0: yeah uh
1: and i i don't know if i'm ready to like watch a biopic about the making of something like that that uh did you hear like... did
0: you hear steve buscemi talk on mark maron's wtf no okay steve buscemi kind of talks about how he got to work with jarmusch and like that's really interesting too i think you'd be into that
1: yeah. i think i did listen to that interview that was a while ago right
0: it was maybe two months ago, something like that.
1: Oh, no. Then, then I must have listened to something else. And...
0: I love that whole. Like, <clears throat> I watched that documentary about Rockets Red Glare. Did you ever know Rockets Red Glare?
1: I apparently crossed paths with Rockets a lot, but I never talked okay. to him. Um, but
0: okay.
1: I started stand up in the Lower East Side performance yeah. open mic scene in the 90s. Like the mid '90s yeah. when I was very, very when well, I was a child, essentially.
0: Um, was Old Man Hustle there back in the day?
1: Oh, this is before Old Man Hustle, dude. This is like, oh shit. Uh, yeah, no, this was. I mean, I started. This is in like. These...
0: This is like when LES still had like uh, Mars Bar and shit, and like heroin people like shooting up inside the bars and shit.
1: Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. It was when, you still like had like all the door, all the bathrooms were locked because people kept ODing in them. But it was after, so it was after like when everything was really scary there.
2: Uh, Uh, But
1: before like all the finance bros started buying uh, apartments.
2: Uh, It's like
1: really cool four year period where uh, all the stores still had bulletproof glass, but there were a lot of little black box theaters all over lower Manhattan. Okay. and people lived in them it was it was like a in hindsight i wish i would understood at the time what a special experience i was going through was yeah but yeah at the time i was just like fucking you know i was 19 i was living my life it was great yeah. uh but um but i apparently i think rockets like owned a bar or worked at a bar near there okay. uh this is even before um god uh manitoba opened his bar like you know yeah. Like handsome Dick ended up opening his own bar, on Avenue A, and oh. then you like walk past a handsome. Avenue but I a saw... in what? I th- I'm sorry, Avenue B, I think. Oh, okay.
0: Or maybe I used Avenue to live B. on Avenue A. I lived on Avenue A in 12th. When oh, I was near 18. sidewalk. Yeah. Yeah. Which is closed. Yeah, and they had Milk Bar right across the street from me, which is closed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All gone. All um, gone. But, uh, yeah, I crossed paths. Like, one night, Bikini Kill showed up to perform at this open mic just kind of very randomly. Wow. It was, uh, I did a, like, I ended up crossing paths. Like, I, I hung out with Taylor Mead a few times. I didn't like him. But <laughs> he's, like, a legendary Warhol guy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh-huh. Uh, just all these, like, old beatniks and, like, just hearing all the all the gossip from the days of the beatnik era.
0: That's interesting. It's yeah. like... I guess, like, a rude way of saying it is, like, they're, like, the backwash of that generation. You know, the leftovers, the ones who didn't die. Right. The ones who have the stories in their heads, and they're still crawling about, talking about it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like, I ended up getting, I don't know if you can see it. I don't feel like getting up, because I'm not wearing pants. Um, (laughs) But I have an Ameri Baraka book, SOS, right there. Oh, wow. Because just when I was a kid, all the old beats hated him. They all like yeah he was not good to his wife uh Uh, he left her and their kid and uh started over changed his name from leroy jones uh and they were all really Uh. mad at him and so then i was at city lights bookstore and i saw this book and i was like well let me see what he's about turns out not a fan like just like (laughs) a lot of beat poetry doesn't i love the stories of the beats yeah. and i love reading about them and i love i've got Allen Ginsberg's book up there too which is mm-hmm. a great book about but a lot of the beat stuff like the actual poetry is just like well
0: i know because that's how i feel about like patty smith for instance like uh-huh. i like reading about her i love her stories but i'm not into her music at all but i love who she influenced like cat power like right. pj harvey you know I could listen to Cat Power, PJ Harvey all day, every day, you know. Mm. But I'm not into Patti Smith's music per se.
1: That's really interesting. I I like Patti Smith a lot. She's not my favorite, but uh, she's someone I had to really like. I mean, part of it was, you know, when I grew up, it's like th- she had a couple of hits that got pl- like just played out on radio. Right. Uh, you know, like right. one that turned out it turned out Bruce Springsteen wrote it. It's really like crazy.
2: Oh, interesting. Uh,
1: Springsteen, by the way, interesting cat. Like uh, someone I used to kind of just write off as like a, just a like another just rocker whose music I played on the radio all the time, and I was like yeah. sick of it for a while, and I was like not yeah. cool,
2: yeah. just not into it. Uh-huh. But
1: then I started reading about him, and I like kind of rediscovered his music because i read. I just thought he was just like another fucking Jersey meathead rocker mm-hmm. guy,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then it turned out like you should really. Very interesting. He wrote, uh, he was very into disco at a time when it was not cool to be into disco.
0: Fascinating.
1: And he like kind of in the 70s was talking about how it was it was racist and homophobic to like the attitude that people had toward disco. Because when I grew up, you know, I grew up in an area where it was all about hard rock, right? Like uh-huh. uh, either heavy metal or classic rock. Uh-huh. And if you liked anything else, it was very suspect. So yeah, to me, it was yeah. just, like, normal to say disco sucks, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But
1: then, but then like, you listen to disco, and you're like, holy shit, there's some amazing music in this. Like,
0: it's psychedelic. It's
1: like psychedelic, but also the horns in your average great disco song
2: uh-huh.
1: are, like, these guys not only have to play well, they have to play uh-huh. to the beat. And they uh-huh. have to, like, fucking really hit every note exactly.
0: And it's a funky beat. It's not a very typical beat.
1: No, and it's a fast beat, at least for the time. You know, like, it was before, you know, there was 100 songs at 180 beats per second. So you were
0: marveling at their skill. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But also, not only, but like the musicianship, and so there's just like a lot of soul in a Bee Gees song that, Uh uh, that like, I didn't really understand when I was younger, because I wasn't exposed to, like really good disco music like the only disco music i was exposed to as a kid was on a uh, Sesame Street Fever which huh. by the way I is a song this. oh my god <laughs> it's it's just basically these old Sesame Street songs done to a disco beat uh uh-huh. and but it turns out Robin Gibbs was all over that album and like all these legit uh legit musicians were on it so I you know I loved I loved it as a kid because I had like rubber ducky and and Grover and all that yeah but as an adult I'm listening I'm like holy shit this is tight like this is a major
0: TV production yeah 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 yeah. serious shit yeah
1: yeah yeah anyway what is
0: it what about that band Boney M never heard of him interesting uh my friend Thomas Bucher he's like in his 50s now (laughs) It's like pushing 60. Um, Uh. He, like, he just, like, messaged me randomly, like, like a song. It's like, Boney M, my favorite band. And I was like, yeah, it's dope, man. You know? But interestingly, um, South Koreans know Boney M very well. Because there's this one Boney M song that they recycled and they made into their own song. Like, these Korean comedians, like, five comedians, they, like, redid that song into their own thing. And like, made Boney M super fucking popular. But Boney M, I would say, is, like, that sort of funk, disco kind of band. I think you'd be into their music if you're into them. I'll listen I mean, to if it. If you're into disco. Um, let, me, well, let me ask you this. Oh, you, yeah, okay, ahead, you me ask
1: see. me. It's your podcast. You ask me.
0: No, 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 no. no. A- go ahead. Ask me first. It's fine.
1: So, la- so last week, I think we were talking, or the week before, and you were the telling me before. that you teach Asian cinema at UCLA? Is that...
0: No, um, I do not teach Asian cinema. I teach... My specialty and my research is Korean television. That's Korean television,
1: special. that's it. Yeah. And so, like, what... It, I know nothing about Korean television.
0: Well, you know something about Korean television because you see how popular Squid Game is today. And that's technically I've never that. television.
1: And I've watched M.A.S.H., which uh, <laughs> had... Had a Japanese actors playing Koreans.
0: Actually, there was one Korean on M.A.S.H., and he was a stand-up comic named Johnny Yoon. And I wrote a yeah. whole paper about this fucking guy. But he was Johnny in Yoon. MASH. Yeah, oh,
1: that's right. Bush. They call me yeah. Bruce.
0: They call me Bruce.
1: And they still they call, call me Bruce.
0: Bruce. And they still call me Bruce. Actually, they still call me Bruce. I think Kino Lorber distributes their DVDs. Really? And even Yeah, yeah. Even though I was working at Kino at the time, like I just didn't know what the fuck I was looking at. And I was like, what is this? Like, Who's this guy?
1: Johnny um, Yoon's an interesting story because that guy was on Carson like a 100 times. Like, Carson, times. he loved Johnny Yoon, right? He loved
0: Johnny Yoon. And NBC gave Johnny Yoon three pilots because Carson loved Johnny Yoon and uh-huh. because Fred Silverstein who at the time was, like, the executive for any sitcom, right? Like, he was over at CBS, ABC, and then he, like, NBC was like, please, like, we need you. Like, in the late 70s, early 80s, like, NBC was, like, the shittiest network of all three. And Fred Silverstein got hired in order to re-recuperate NBC and said, Johnny Yoon, maybe you can be the first person of color to have a talk show of your own. And gave Johnny Yoon a variety show, a variety show, like a Tonight Show, basically. For like Johnny Yoon was leading it; he was the host.
1: He was was the fucking
0: host.
1: Was that before or after? God, what's it called? Uh, The one with the two women and and the comedian ruined his career. Pink Lady and
0: Jeff. Uh, that I don't know. That oh, I don't okay. know. But but this like they gave him this variety show in a period where variety shows were on their way out. You know, right? Like variety shows were back then. They were very expensive because they mm-hmm. had like like line dancers. They had like all this fucking thing. And it was a very expensive production and people weren't all that interested. They were getting into like sitcoms. They were getting into action action uh, T V shows. They were getting into social issues, you know, getting down with that. And they were just like, What the fuck are we gonna watch a variety show with this like weird like <laughs> Asian guy for? And it it, tank- it like it didn't I don't think it went to Um, and it didn't have a long life. So all of his pilots just went to shit. He even had a sitcom. He had a sitcom that was supposed to be like a, all in the family. But right. So Johnny Yoon is married to a woman, a white lady, and he lives with the white lady's parents. And the father, his father-in-law is like the Archie bunker type. Like he's a bigot. He just says all this bigoted shit to Johnny Yoon. And, uh, you know, it's it's like a sitcom about that. But while they were filming that, Johnny Yoon had like a mental breakdown. <laughs> he had an emotional breakdown because NBC was working him so hard. You know, three TV shows in one fucking year. And he just felt so trapped and taken advantage of. So he just stormed out and then his career never, never recovered. But after that, he made They Call Me Bruce. Right. Because he had the money to do it.
1: Yeah. I think it's interesting... That he was doing an all in the family type show because that's not his stand-up style at all,
0: I know I know like I know. like
1: he he was very much about like he had that joke about like something about rice like some some guys have long rice, I have minute rice,
0: oh yeah, yeah, the minute rice thing it had to do with a uh, sexual like him having sex like right, yeah yeah, yeah um he had another joke about rice where they were like you know how he was like Americans throw rice at weddings <clears> and you know my family goes and picks up the rice off the floor or something like that like it's like very like you know it's hack humor if you think about it it's hack uh-huh. it's like uh, racialized it's um it's like uncle tom like kind of it's like ken jung shit <laughs> like all of us asian american uh, korean american comics we, we all collectively make fun of ken jung a lot cause seriously just like he's the yeah Because we're like, he's the guy who just drank Hollywood's fruit punch and said, go ahead, make fun of me for my Asian identity. Make fun of me for my Asian masculinity. Have at it all you want. And that's why Ken Jeong flies around in private jets, okay? Like, it does pay to degrade yourself down to that level. But the Korean American comics, all of us, collectively, we all make fun of him and none of us respect him.
1: Do you um <laughs> I think that's very interesting because I know that like yeah. uh oh, I've got a great book up here. <laughs> Again, I'm not gonna stand up, but uh yeah. but it's a, a guy named Burt Williams. And Burt Williams was the biggest comedian in the world. Like he was the mm-hmm. biggest comedy star in the world. He was a black man. He and his uh, partner uh his his comedy partner they had they were the first black actors to star on a Broadway show and they would like write mm. write and produce their own shows and then his he and his partner yeah. had a big breakup his partner died and bert was like kind of the sad man who went on his own and was like the biggest star in vaudeville ever wow
2: um
1: and he wore blackface for a very long time like like in the 20s already people were like enough with the blackface uh uh-huh. but bert williams like Burt Williams, like him and Pigmy Markham, were two ge- were two guys who just like wore the blackface a lot longer than than they should have. Um, uh huh.
0: Uh-huh. And but, they had, but like, they had a politicized purpose behind it. No, I think like you, you read about
1: Burt Williams and you get the sense that like he was this very shy guy who was afraid of a lot of people a lot, and maybe the blackface was used as a way to, to have a mask
0: maybe like a clown thing he was kind of a clown
1: i mean maybe but the but the result was like there were a lot of people who were very mad at burt williams like black comics and actors who were very mad at him because he just refused like he refused to you know and so yeah but but what's interesting about that is you know yeah after a while people have kind of people who remember him, very few people remember him, but they, they've kind of like come around to saying like, well, this was a guy who, who had to suffer a lot to kind of be a famous black man in a, in a world where like he, he was the biggest star on vaudeville and he would tour these, these like huge, great vaudeville theaters, but he wasn't allowed to stay in hotels. He wasn't allowed to use the, the front entrance Mm
2: -hmm.
1: uh, (laughs) at the theaters where he was performing. Like he yeah. would be performing in front of these segregated audiences where like,
0: yeah, yeah, you know,
1: all the black people were in the balconies, uh, right. you know, and he, he suffered a lot. So I guess what I'm saying is like, there may come a time when you see Ken Jeong as like a guy who had to put up with a lot of shit to be successful and like put himself out there as a, as a face for, for Asian comedians at a time. To- like think about the nineties yeah. and two thousands when he, yeah. when he broke, who else was yeah. there? You know, Margaret Cho. Margaret Cho yeah. Yes, Margaret Cho, who uh, suffered a lot. Like you read about she what she went a lot. through.
0: So much trauma there.
1: You read she about kinda what she kind of
0: went through. The same thing that Johnny U went through, and that like the people yes. were handling her her sitcom. I mean, nobody was equipped to handle a Korean American story at all. So they no. were just all bullshitting, making shit up, and turning into this hallucination, a white man's imaginary hallucination of what they are projecting to be a Korean-American family household. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and it's like you could have slotted anyone into that role. I mean, it was like yeah she starred in it, but you could have slotted any comedian into that role, and it would have been pretty much the same show.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's always that sacrificial lamb in a way. There's always that martyr right. figure. I mean, I don't uh, detest Ken Jung. I just don't respect him because, you know, I mean, but, you know, Ken Jeong, he profited from it. You know, he made the money right. from it. He, I think he knows deliberately what it is that he's doing. You know, Ken Jung is actually somebody who performs Yellow Face. I mean, that's what, what do he mean? does. He's Yellow Face, as in it's like Blackface, right? Like this guy, Burt Williams, he's a Black uh, performer who's performing in Blackface, right? Yes. Like, so, yes. whatever whatever makes the white spectator laugh and make fun of that stereotype more and, and cater to their pleasure. Ken Jung does yellow face performance in that, you know, he sort of talks in this orientalist stilted way sometimes in order to poke fun of Asians and how far back does that Asian stereotype go? It goes back to the beginning of, you know, um, ster- like Asian stereotypes, yellow peril, all of that shit. Right? Um, so Ken Jeong, is, is a, is a, that's why we call him an Uncle Tom, because he's enacting yellow face performances in his work. Um, but it's like after the Hangover franchise, he did uh-huh. try to do his own thing, right? He had his own sitcom, Dr. Ken, and he had, right. he had his stand-up special, which is like a d- disastrous debacle of a horseshit crap. It's awful. But I, I'm like down with his hustle, you know and it's like he knew how to game it he was gaming the system at the expense of his asian american identity and i'm not i'm not saying that that is necessarily wrong it's just something i'm not on board with you know like that's not the kind of career i would ever want you know now, like, Grace, do I want... yeah
1: i'm sorry go, go, go. i'm sorry i'll ask yeah, questions it's after like
0: you do don't... i do i do i want that do i want that kind of life at the expense of this knowing the history of where these kinds of stereotypes come from and the answer is no um but then i look at somebody like randall park and i'm like i'm down with what he's doing you know i like what he does i i love ali wong and what she's about i loved her book john cho is great john cho john cho is so overlooked but john cho was in a sitcom on yeah. major TV network in the late 90s, early 2000s. I remember yeah. seeing him. And um, a lot <clears throat> of these guys, like John Cho and Ken Jung, like dudes of that generation, all of their roles, like even Ken Jung in like community, all of these like Asian male roles, they like when they had lines, they would be like this weird, hysterical, like uh, disruptive, dysfunctional kind of element. That would call like wreak havoc, they would be the problem element, you know and i find I find right. that in some ways one one way of productive thinking because it's like how is that going up against this other stereotype of Asians being the model minority and all fucking rigid and straight edged and intelligent and higher educated and aiming for these kinds of professional jobs, right? You got that going, but against that stereotype, how are these kinds of figures undoing that, right? So like, while Ken Jeong pisses me off sometimes, if I try to compare it to that other structure, the structure that the right wing wants to use in their conservative rhetoric, then I'm like, I can see the productive work that people like Ken Jeong and John Cho are doing in sitcoms.
1: Now, let me ask you this. I'm actually, this is a serious question. I'm genuinely curious about this.
0: Yeah.
1: What if I one day said to you, hey, I've got a thing, a project. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want you to play it like a tiger mom, like a real mm-hmm. Asian tiger mom, and you'll get $175,000 for it. Like, would you, would you feel comfortable saying no to that?
0: Right now at this time, I would have to think about it.
1: Oh, that's the problem, right? I mean, you it know, is. it is.
0: I would just have to think about it. I would have to know more about it. I would have to know more about it in terms of like, do you want me to use an accent? If is oh, yeah. yes, then I would oh, say no. Oh yeah. I would say no. I would say absolutely no. No, no. But no, Grace, no, no.
1: you're the only person that can do this. Two hundred twenty-five thousand.
0: <laughs> no. No, you want me to do a fucking accent? No, I don't want to do it.
1: But yeah. you'd be, all right. 325 and i'd you'd have to do the accent but i'd let you work like collaborate with me on 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 your role a little bit and write your lines but you would definitely be playing an asian mom who's like nagging her son to do better in school
0: i don't mind nagging my son to do better in school Uh that i could do all day every day no fucking problem that's real but i don't want to do an accent okay i would stand very interesting yeah I know. Isn't it? Isn't it? I feel conflicted as I'm saying that. That's a really good question. I love your
2: question.
0: I feel conflicted doing that, but it's like, I don't feel comfortable putting on an accent at all. I would rather you hire a Korean like fob who, Uh and there are plenty of them in LA who, if, if they're speaking English, like their English would just have an accent, like from whatever, you know, or whatever FOB, you know, proximity they are to their nation. And what does FOB is... mean? Oh, fresh off the boat. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah yeah.
1: but what if I said, like, actually, well, I grew up in Queens around a lot of Asian families. Yeah. And I was like, eh, it's just based on a character. But it's very interesting, you know, because, like, I grew up in a household. My dad's family were all Irish, right? Yeah. Uh, but he grew up in a time when his Dad, his parents were not, well, it was a different time. People were not really like into the whole, what's my ethnic background thing. And they mm-hmm. were just very much about being assimilated Americans. Yes. So I, I didn't really grow up with a lot of Irish pride in my house. Cause also mm-hmm. my dad's family came from the, came off the famine boats, which was like a long time mm-hmm. ago. And they okay. just fucking wanted to be Americans and eat. Um, yeah. 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 They were like they left Ireland for a very bunch of very good reasons, yeah. um, and but but so when I so as a result I kind of was aware that there were Irish people and I grew up around a lot of them in Queens, yeah. but they were all Irish Americans. Yeah. And then one day I saw <laughs> the uh, St. Patrick's Day parade on Fifth Avenue, and I was like, "What the fuck am I looking at?" Because it's yeah. like a lot of people who are not Irish feeling oh. very, very comfortable throwing yeah. around a lot of anti-Irish uh, sentiment and stereotypes. Yeah, and and people in this country and are
0: getting wasted, which is an Irish stereotype.
1: W- w- which, by the way, I've been to Dublin. It's a it's a thing, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I I've been wasted in Dublin. It's not. It's actually not fun. Um, it's. it's <laughs> because yeah. it's a lot of like uh, a lot of those european countries are very dark a lot of the year and cold yeah. and everyone's just fucking depressed and angry all the time
0: yeah and the was, and they
1: just they have... drink like crazy uh to deal with it exactly and exactly it's like that's that's why they're the stereotypes about the irish drinking and fighting because they do but also like the british do it and the you know the scottish and just fucking that whole British uh when know. I
0: heard what people in London do after work I was shocked like my friend says she she lived in London for like seven years and worked there and lived there she said after work they would just <clears throat> go to a pub and just start drinking no right. dinner just fucking getting smashed and then right. they would just, like, go to a a shop and get, like, a Kit Kat bar and then go to sleep and go to work again. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, that was just so shocking and worrisome to me. But she said that's the culture in London. That's how they go down.
1: Oh, yeah. The reason the pubs close at midnight is because if they were open till 2, they would die. I mean, that's just,
2: <laughs> like...
0: Um, I don't drink anymore, and I'm so happy I don't, and koreans drink a lot too this is something Mm -hmm. i'm kind of thinking about lately like drinking culture is so it's such an integral part of the korean social fabric like i went to korea the last time i was in korea was 20 late 2018 early 2019 i was there conducting field work for my dissertation and i was hanging out with a lot of stand-up comedians in korea and like that it's just a bonding ritual you go out while you're eating Korean Koreans always eat as they drink. They never just drink only. They got to eat. And that's why they could drink for so fucking long. It's cuz they're they're like, you know, <laughs> their stomach is nice and sturdy cuz they ate a meal. So right. they they just drink like motherfuckers. Motherfuckers. They'll drink when they're sad. They'll drink when they're happy. They'll drink when they're bored. They'll drink to wor- uh bond at work. Oh my god. They'll drink to decompress. They'll drink at funerals. They'll drink at, they'll drink all the time. And I'm looking at that culture through television right now. And I'm looking at like companies like Chino and Heights, which are the the soju and beer pr- producers in Korea, and their sponsorship in these kinds of TV shows and movies and how prevalent it is. Like in every single episode of a, of a show, you're going to see drinking. Every single one. There's like not a single episode where somebody is not going to have a drink. They're always going to have soju. They're always going to have a beer. And the reason it, it could be any fucking reason it, it would still be normal and applicable. And I'm just like, this is why so many women get sexually assaulted in the workplace. It's because drinking is part of the whole deal. It's like, what makes you think it's okay to get shit faced as part of the job and not expect men to get sexually aggressive. It's going to fucking happen. And when is that going to end? It's like these shows are critiquing that kind of culture and critiquing the patriarchy and the, the drunken aggressiveness. But at the same time, they're constantly pushing and advertising drinking in their shows for any fucking occasion. And I'm just looking at that. That tension there and i'm like why isn't anybody calling this out it's weird in any what, case yeah koreans drink just as much as the irish
1: i want to know what korean stand-up comedy is like
0: oh right now you know what you could actually see them they're on netflix right now and uh this is what's happening in korea this is my whole dissertation so uh-huh. comedians in korea the way that they would get their um jobs <clears throat> is they would have to go through the the star hiring process which is through the tv networks so it could it could be one of the th- big three it was sbs kbs and NBC. so they would just go it's like an open audition open call audition and anybody can literally go and just like audition like perform and it's usually like cheesy ass gags like sketch stuff like like um, like gimmicky shit with like props and makeup and hair and like, you know, very like slapsticky and you know, it's like very old school, old timey shit. And uh, actually very vaudevillian if you think about it. And uh, mm. they had all these sketch variety shows that were very popular. They were all family oriented, really uh, like, like, you know tame, mild stuff. And then so they would go through the star recruiting process and then pick maybe like seven to ten out of the hundreds if not thousands who applied and then they would make it right make the cut and then what they have to fucking do is um, hope that they will end up getting some airtime because a lot of them would not get airtime cuz they just got hired instead they would end up doing all this like bullshit grunt work for the seniors who are more mm-hmm. established they would go and get coffee for them they would go and get their lunch they would go and run their personal errands they would go and you know like kiss ass to the one writer and the one director for the entire show it's nothing like SNL where you have writers and you know it's right. like so fucking hierarchical rigid militant um they would practice corporal punishment on their juniors like you know just because everybody in korea all the men went to military and they all have they think that that's like the way to do things and it's just like punishing right and then last year the longest ever sketch variety show that was in korea it ended after something like 30 40 years they just they ended it because nobody's fucking watching these shows so the comedians they don't have the star recruiting system anymore because the networks are no longer producing these shows. So they don't have a need for these comedians. So the comedians who are trying to become comedians make it. They don't know what the fuck to do. Those are stand. Uh-huh. Those are doing stand-up comedy right now. Okay. And and then the ones who are more established, who already have star status because they were on television for t- like two, three, four decades, they're getting stand-up specials via Netflix. And three of them okay. did get it, on, and they're on Netflix right now. And they're terrible. They're ter- right. <laughs> they're terrible because they're not stand-up comedians. They're sketch comics, right? It's a whole completely different fucking beast. In fact, one of them, uh, Nare Park, she was actually supposed to be in the Netflix comedy festival last year. She was supposed to perform it at The Will Turn, and then they, uh-huh. they canceled it because of COVID. In her Netflix special, you can see her reading reading her lines from monitors on the stage man like she's fucking (laughs) reading her jokes bro i was like are you shitting me are you fucking shitting me but that just shows you that exposes how they're just utterly unprepared for stand-up specials from netflix but Korea's getting them because Korea and Netflix have, they're in this fucking love fest right now, you know? They're down to do whatever they fucking want. And the ones who get to do them are the ones who have star power right now. But you have yeah. these genuine stand-up comics who are coming up, people who got ditched from the star recruiting system who never even made their big break on television because their shows got cancelled. Those guys, and then you have other locals who are, who've are just been doing stand-up comedy like on their own through little open mics here and there. And they just have no media ecosystem to, to support their dream. So they're relying on things like YouTube. They're relying on things like TikTok. They're relying on live performances. They're just doing their own thing. So it's a fertile ground for new stuff and innovative stuff. But um, it's also like I just don't see the light right now as of now. You know, it's kind of it's kind of sad. It's a bummer. But um, yeah, I've been talking for too long.
1: No, no, that it's all right. A it's, uh, yeah. That's very interesting to me. Um, yeah. You know, it's uh, it was a real eye-opener. I performed, I, I mean, I, I haven't been in Europe in a while, but I used to perform in Europe. And
0: What boy, country I, specifically?
1: Well, I, Ireland, England, mm-hmm. Scotland, but also like okay. Sweden, Germany. Um, Did you ever go to Berlin? I love Berlin. It's my favorite.
0: I love Berlin, man. Berlin's came, the best. I came
1: really close to moving there for a while. Me
0: and too. I, I wish I had. Oh, me too. I love Berlin.
1: I, not Their comedy late, man, scene's I...
0: fucking popping. Their comedy scene is, like, it Dude, is when, full on.
1: When I first started going there, was, there was uh, the Kookaburra Comedy Club, which I would perform at every time I went there. It's which still was there, great. But now it's
0: owned by different guys. Yeah, yeah.
1: Is it? That's too bad. I loved the owners. No,
0: no. It's a, it's a good like. So cosmic comedy. Do you know cosmic comedy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those guys took over Kookaburra. Okay. Well, yeah. The, so it's it's in good have, hands.
1: It used to be like this great family run, basically a family run comedy club, and like, yeah, it was really interesting because the couple that owned it had their own sitcom. It was like a white lady wow. and an Indian guy. Yeah. Uh, and they had a sitcom yeah. about their lives, and I think they used that money to open the club and, or whatever. But uh,
0: Oh, fascinating. Yeah. I
1: think that's the story. But uh, this woman used to just run an English... I mean, this is how Podunk Berlin comedy used to be. This woman, mm. Kim Eustace, was this Australian woman
2: uh-huh. who uh,
1: went moved to Berlin and just mm. ran a, uh, a comedy variety night once a month called English uh, English... English comedy night i think it was i still have the mug uh-huh. somewhere
0: uh-huh.
1: uh but i would just go there you know pay all right and i would just spend a week in berlin like just kind of hanging out and
0: yeah
1: fucking i understand it's very very different there now um but at the time the it was english like the
0: english stand up comedy scene is like it's pretty it's pretty great like whenever i go to berlin i'll just go for 3 months and I'll just like use it like boot camp. I just I get stage time every fucking night. There's always right. a fucking audience. I just do my thing. I'll write forty five minutes of new stuff every time I go. Of course, like once I bring it back to the states, maybe like ten fifteen is only good. But I write like a motherfucker when I'm in Berlin.
1: And it's just and... such a great vibe. I mean, Berlin oh, has always reminded God. me it's of so like good. the uh, the East Village when I was going there in the nineties. Like that's just kind yeah. of like yeah. A... But in fact, if I don't get into these uh, film classes I'm applying to, I think I'm gonna just go there for six months and just kind of sublet my apartment and
2: do
0: it. Like do
1: exactly what you're talking about.
0: It is Um, so fun. I I love going every fucking year. And this year in 2022, in the summer, I really want to go if I can. Just put all my shit up in storage and just fucking just go. We'll go be roommates. I love Berlin. Yeah. I'm serious, Grace. I I would do that.
1: We could get like a nice apartment if we if we pool our money. We get we don't have to live in a fucking shithole.
0: Well, whenever I went to Berlin, I never lived in a shithole. I would just it would just be expensive because like as foreigners, like Airbnb and all, they just jack up the fucking prices. Yeah, hell yeah. I would still be paying less. I would be paying less than what I would pay when I'm in LA for sure. So it wouldn't be too big of a jump, but still, like fucking. I love Berlin, and the only thing the reason why i didn't stay in berlin though and i came back to la is because there's a limit to how high you can get in in germany as a comic because you gotta speak german like english standard comedy scene is such a small niche pocket and economically it doesn't make sense if you want to get on television and get a show and all that you gotta know german you gotta be fluent in german The other reason why I was like, I'm not going to stay in Berlin is because, yeah, I'm like one of the better comics when I'm in Berlin. But like, I want to be in L.A. or New York with the rigor, you know, get really fucking good. And I was it's it was clear to me that L.A. and New York have the best stand ups. Berlin doesn't have it. Seoul doesn't have it. Barcelona doesn't have it. Amsterdam doesn't have it. Nowhere in the fucking world do they have the best stand-up comedians who perform in English, which is the best language for stand-up comedy. They don't have it. It's in LA or it's in New York, and that was fucking clear to me. So I was like, nah. You I think go LA back. has
1: the best comedy scene?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it I has feel really I really
1: I feel respect. really bad for anyone who starts in LA. Cuz this is yeah? a shitty is town that? to start in. It's a shitty town to start in. I and, think it's a shitty uh, town
0: to start in if you just stay here. I think it's okay if you like go on the road or if you go to festivals and you travel internationally. Then I think it's doable. But I feel the I didn't opposite. Start, I didn't. I didn't start comedy in New York. I started in Los Angeles. So um, I
1: don't see a lot of rigor in comics here. I see a lot of
0: personalities.
1: I'll say this, and I'm probably saying too much for something that's being recorded and potentially listened to. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying it's to find a very. Opinion. Who cares? This is a very political way of saying this. When I okay. first hit a life five years ago, yeah. I would see comics where I would say, Boy, that person, for for someone who's new, they're really good. And if you give them five or seven years, they'll develop into something really worth watching. Okay. And then you talk to them and find out they've been doing it for 10 or 15 or 20 years. Oh, yeah. And you're like, Oh, that person is bad but they're just good enough to perform on each other's like their friend's shows and do these like open mics and then 5 years later they're still doing the same fucking 3 minutes at open mics that they've always been doing and you're like oh this is this is bad and this is a town that's filled with 1500 of them and yeah. it's a little frustrating cuz you're competing for all the same opportunities with 1500 yeah. people
0: yeah
1: and yeah you know and it's like I've actually, I think I've gotten worse as a comedian since I moved here. I've gotten better at everything else, uh, actually. So I'm I'm not, like, upset that I moved here. But just strictly as a stand-up comic, I've gotten lazier. And uh, I've just kind of written less. It's, like, just... It's a great place to find yourself as an all-around... And actually, this is something I really needed, is I've gotten the discipline as a yeah. writer that i lacked in new york um because um, i was like very disciplined as a stand-up comedy writer yeah uh but there's just no real incentive to learn how to write screenplays or fucking pilots unless your plan is to move to la eventually and work on them right which for right. a long time it wasn't for me like for a long time i was just kind of doing well in stand-up and why, like, why did
0: you move to la then
1: because I want to be a writer, and I want to make money. I mean, that's where the real money is. There's no money in stand-up comedy. Unless you're, like, extremely lucky, which I, I... I am lucky. I've had a good career. I've had a better career yeah. than most, and I can't complain. Yeah. But yeah. I don't have that thing... At the end of the day, I don't have that thing that makes uh, TV executives excited, and I don't have that thing that, like, pops... As a performer, and I understand that. Like, I'm not, like, a guy who... I'm a guy who people enjoy watching, and I do well on stage. But I'm not a guy that, like, has that next-level thing where people are like, oh, my God, this guy's... Like, we have... Like, I just can't stop watching this guy. Like, <laughs> like Patton Oswalt's a guy you can watch for two hours, right? And I have a very, very hard limit at an hour. Like, just mm. like at an hour, my audiences are done. Like, mm. <laughs> even if I'm having a great time and I want to keep rolling at an hour, I can feel the energy and interest drop off. You know, mm. I, I recorded my last album uh, at the Bell House in Brooklyn and I went for about an hour 20. And I would mm-hmm. say the last 10 minutes of that, uh, the audience was just like kind of like, all right, <laughs> we're enjoying this. But it's out. time to go.
0: Not checked wow. out
1: but it's just like, you could huh. feel the energy starting to go.
0: Taking a dip. Okay.
1: Right. And it's like someone like Chappelle could go for four or six hours and <laughs> right. like people will stick with him. but I'm just right. not that guy. So, right. you know, I'm like, okay, well, then I got to pivot. I have a lot of other strengths, you know, as a writer and, and whatever. And I've, yeah. I've had some success as a writer before I moved here. And so I was like, all right, man, uh, you know, why am I yeah. gonna spend the rest of my life and my career beating my head against a wall when it's not working uh you know so why not like uh why not find something that also works for me and I can keep doing the stand up while I pursue all this other stuff
0: yeah, I love stand up though it's like my first and yeah me too love. It's like... yeah, i've been
1: I've been doing it for twenty five years it's uh you know yeah, yeah I don't do it because I hate it but <laughs> But LA yeah. makes it really challenging to love it in my experience.
0: I think that's why it depends on the person. I think, cause I know about the people you speak of uh-huh. and yeah, I see them too. And you know, you also have like these fucking, you know, fucking clown, not the respectful actual clown acts, but like literal Riff. fucking piece of shit, bullshit clowns who they got no material. And they just want to pass with their fucking personalities and their fucking <laughs> TikTok videos. And it's just a load of bullshit. It's a load of crap, but it's like, for me, I, I always make an effort to write something new every day. If not every week, like I, I stay on top of that. And I, I go to Mike's regularly this week. I can't cause my sh- car is at the shop, but it's like, I just, it's like, it's, I have the inner rigor. And I have the inner authority, the inner discipline. Your car's in the shop. Yeah, my Ho- holy shit. failed.
1: Dude, yeah. I know where you live. That is,
0: I know you it's are. A you are alone. I am perched up here, up I'll tell in you the what, castle. Grace. I'm a Rapunzel.
1: I am slammed please... with work, yeah. but at the end of the week, if you need a ride to a mic or something like Friday, just yeah. hit me up and I'll. Thank
0: holy you. shit.
1: I'll take the twenty yeah, minute drive to where you live, and then.
0: I mean, I'm so like I'm so <laughs> grateful for Liquid Zoo being across the street from me. Oh like, well, I now
1: now on strangers on the internet know where you live. <laughs> so you're gonna get murdered.
0: That's fine. I love Liquid Zoo. I was there <laughs> on Sunday, and it was actually a really nice vibe this past Sunday. Like I had a great time and i felt comfortable i was like riffing uh-huh. came up with new stuff it was a nice time um okay i want to i want to ask you some flashcard questions based on a tv show this is like the gimmick part of the podcast so course, this I is what the you... fans have been
1: waiting for yeah they're
0: like yeah, they're like this, they're is, like, this listen... is
1: great <laughs> <laughs> when do we get to the flashcards, grace come on
0: when are they gonna talk about korean dramas for fuck's sake yeah yeah As actually like I'm,
1: I I would talk to you about Korean dramas because I know very little about... I haven't watched Squid Games. Uh, and if that's my entry point to Korean TV, then it's going to... I know, think I, you
0: would like Squid Game. I, oh, I I'm sure I, I would like love Squid it. Game.
1: But I just haven't watched yeah. it yet. So that's like... I know yeah. nothing about Korean television.
0: Let me know what you think after you watch it. and uh, I okay. did two episodes on Squid Game for this podcast too. and. Uh, I'm going to give you...
2: I'm
1: going to give you a viewing assignment also. Yeah, okay, I watched. Yeah. The last movie I watched was last week. Okay. It was a crazy movie from 1970. Oh. It was a Japanese girl biker movie called Ooh. Stray Cat Rock Delinquent Girl Boss. <laughs> uh, very, very Japanese movie title. Um, I want to
0: see this movie so badly.
1: It's about. Uh, it's about biker gangs in L in in L.A. in Tokyo Uh, and it's basically it's this production company where they watch these Roger Corman American International picture violent sex biker movies and Uh it blew uh their minds and then they decided to make their own Uh, and so but the but the one of the leads is this woman who's a biker tough as shit Yeah.
2: yeah
1: lesbian like, just, like, oh. dances with all the girls. Yeah,
2: yeah, there's yeah like yeah.
1: They all hang out at a club. I, I didn't understand, like, the Japanese cinema back then was so open about, uh, I guess you call it queer lifestyle now. When I was yeah. young, we called it alternative lifestyle. But uh, that's uh, very, it's like there's this, yeah. this comic relief trio, two guys and a woman. They're just constantly making out in the corner of the club. <laughs> just fucking yeah. uh, absolutely great. Very violent. Like there's a. It sounds very
0: punk rock, but it's like 70s.
1: Extremely well, punk rock was 70s, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a rock band. This girl, this girl, woman, like uh, sometimes just steps on stage and starts singing lead with the band. Uh, That's amazing. It's fucking crazy.
0: This sounds like a movie that was made for me. I like this assignment. I'm. Gonna, I'm telling you,
1: and so I'm gonna get into it. Yeah. i a, I bought this. This is a Blu-ray series from Arrow, but it's a, It's okay. a, It's up on up on YouTube, but. Uh, okay. But you can find you can find it streaming on Amazon Prime. I think it's on Amazon Prime. Uh, okay. It's a much better print because it's the Arrow <laughs> print. But uh, yeah. anyway, um, and it's very very Thank low you. budget. So sometimes yeah. it feels like you're watching a documentary. Mm, anyway, I just uh, I just yeah. had the vibe that you might this might be a movie that would appeal to you.
0: Oh yeah, are you kidding? This sounds like exactly the kind of thing I'd want to see.
1: <laughs> yeah, huge hit. Yeah, delinquent girl I, I, boss.
0: Delinquent girl boss. I love that. I love the title too. Fuck, stray cat, delinquent.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. Thank you. I wrote it down. I will watch it. Okay, I'm going to ask you some flashcard questions based <clears throat> on a show called The King's Affection, which the series just ended this week. So okay. you can all see the whole thing. The finale is from this week. Um, it is a 20-episode miniseries. It's based on the Joseon Dynasty period. So it's a period piece, but it's hmm. not based on any real actual lived kings or queens. This is all just made up. So this it's like Chinese? a hybrid. No, this is Korean. This is a Korean, Korean. drama. Okay, okay. Everything here is Korean drama. Okay. And it is uh, it is about um, a woman who is passing as a king. That's what it's about. Okay. Okay. So, let me ask you some questions based on scenes from the show and you would just answer what you would do if you were in this situation, okay? Okay. So, let's say let's say you're the queen of Korea. All right, Mm -hmm. You just gave birth to twins, a boy and a girl. The Mm -hmm. doctor, the queen dowager, your father, and the king all say that the girl needs to be killed because twins are a bad omen. Hmm. And they have a son that can be the crown prince. So they say we have to kill the girl. What do you do?
1: I'm going to make a guess about how this story went okay she gave secretly she said she killed she said she killed the baby right she tells him she killed the baby but she gives it up for adoption and it's raised as a commoner and then one day comes back to take uh, the throne and I'm guessing that this is the girl that ends up masquerading as the king
0: yes it is okay yeah but what would you do if you were this mother the mother of these twins
1: I would do what she did. I would say I killed the baby, and uh okay. I mean that's that's a story that goes back to Moses <laughs> no it is it is yeah I mean yeah, that's like right. uh, yeah. it's like literally the oldest story yeah. on earth
0: mm. it's biblical it is biblical mm. okay let's say let's say now you're the orphan girl you're that oh, the, okay. that commoner girl your your name is Tammy, and you're twelve years old and uh-huh. You're a commoner, right? and you're, you just started your job at the palace as one of these palace girls, like working in the kitchen or whatever. And then one afternoon, you meet the crown prince, and guess what? He looks exactly like you. What you and doing? nobody's
1: ever noticed this before.
0: No, no.
1: This is just something where it's like, we all work with the prince day after day.
0: There are hundreds of there there are hundreds of people at the palace, so like a lot of okay. people's faces go overlooked. But yeah, like okay. you, you see the crown prince, and he looks exactly like you. What do you do?
1: Uh I'm gonna guess first I do a zoom in with the camera with a big musical sting. Uh <laughs> and then a cut back to me looking surprised, but like trying to hide it. That's my guess. Um uh-huh. Honestly, me being me, I'd probably keep my mouth shut about it. Uh, <laughs> cause, but I, yeah. I guess like I guess like I would start asking around and like just telling people like in my life, like, what the fuck I look exactly like the prince? What's going yeah. on here?
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, I'd be a little worried about because <laughs> the other thing is like there is a thing with royalty called bastard children. And I'd be worried a little bit about making waves with the king because, like, you don't want to embarrass royalty. Uh, you don't want to embarrass someone yeah. who's the literal power of life or death over you and everyone you yeah. love. But yeah, I'd yeah. probably start looking into it. Is my is what I would do.
0: Okay, fair enough. All right, let's say you're Tommy again. You're the same chick.
1: I'd be like, the Mom, prom- what the fuck? <laughs> I would. I'd be like, Did you did you know the king? Like, what's going on?
0: Yeah, if you are indeed my mom yeah that is indeed your identity yeah 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 you start questioning everything okay let's say you're tommy again you're still <coughs> the same girl the crown prince says he needs to leave the palace to go see his teacher who is about to get beheaded because he was arrested for treason and mm. he's not allowed to leave the palace so he asks you to switch outfits with him so he's asking <laughs> you to put on his robe and sit in his chair while he wears your dress and leaves the palace to go and meet his, go and see his teacher for the last time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You do this. You you do this. Uh, this thing, but the the prince who's dressed like you, like the chick, he gets shot with an arrow and is killed by a man hired by your maternal grandfather, the very man who said that no twins should be allowed to be born and that the girl needs to be killed um yeah what do you do
1: that's very interesting uh did they kill him because <laughs> he's a twin like they found out he's no they like a... thought
0: they thought he was the girl they thought he was the
1: ah so they knew the girl was still alive
0: yeah they, somebody caught her face caught wind of it and they were like uh-oh
1: She's oh, man. Dead.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. I guess I'd fucking have to live as the king, right? I mean, like, the your options are to flee or to make the best of it.
0: Hmm. Yeah.
1: Uh, okay. Okay. <clears throat> I'd rather live as a king than a refugee, I'll tell you that.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay so you're you're Tommy, you are ah. the Crown Prince, okay? you're the Crown prince like you're you're the queen bef- right before she passed away, your mother said to you, like you need to pretend to be the prince, like that's your fucking identity now. Hide the fact so the, that you're a woman forever, so the Queen knew the Queen found out eventually the okay. Queen found out, yeah, yeah well, she yeah. walked
1: in our, in the in the ladies' room or something.
0: <laughs> she just noticed that her son was no longer like he was different. there was something off about him. um, A mom would
1: know, yeah.
0: Yeah, a mother would know. Um, And the queen said, right before she passed away of illness, she said, you gotta, you know, stay alive and hide your identity and pretend like you're the crown prince. Okay, so you're an adult now. Like, time has passed. You're an adult now. You're still crown prince. But your father dies. The king dies. So you're now officially the king.
2: Hmm. And
0: you're married to the queen. Like, they found a nice, wholesome woman and married her to you. So she's your wife. And there's this thing called a hapbang, which is where, like, the king lives in his his side of the palace and the queen lives in her side of the palace. But they do this thing called a hapbang, which is where the king and queen meet up at another palace together to spend the night together in order to produce an heir. To basically fuck. To get down. Okay? And... and So they
1: have a conjugal trailer.
0: Basically... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah but it's a fucking palace like right. it's a nice fucking thing. So you got to go and be with your queen wife mm-hmm.
2: and
0: provide this service. Mm-hmm. You got this pressure. What do you do?
1: Uh well you can't kill her. Um right. I guess I guess you uh pretend to be impotent. That's a very interesting question. Yeah. Uh you service her orally, I guess.
0: Oh my god. So you as do all, have sex with her. But as all not with as her. all
1: us men do. We service our queens orally. <laughs> <laughs> um
0: gross. Yeah.
1: Really? i I feel bad for you yeah. then. <laughs> <laughs> you you might be dating the wrong fellas. Uh <laughs> um Yeah. Boy, I mean, you know, I, I honestly that's a tricky one, Because right? like
0: I know, yeah. Yeah. But that's what she's pretend- confronted with. Yeah.
1: If I were her, I'd pretend to be sick.
0: Oh. Uh, every night. I'd be like, sorry, babe, I'm <laughs> I'm not feeling so well today.
1: Sorry, I gotta go out of the country to wage a thirteen year war. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So what does she do? Oh, she says, uh, She's so cold. She's like she brings. She tells the server servants to bring in another set of blankets. Uh-huh. She's like, I'm gonna sleep here, and you're gonna sleep there. Wow. And we are not gonna touch each other. Wow. And that's just how it's gonna be. And you're gonna keep your mouth shut about it. It's like really, really cold. This yeah, fucking yeah, gangster. Yeah. 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 This bitch is baller ass. Like she is fucking balls to the wall gangster. Okay. Okay next question let's say you are this uh son of a noble man named chi un okay you're okay. like an aristocrat you're kind of up there in the ranks but you're not part of royalty your father works for the king's maternal grandfather the one that's all like power hungry and crazy and wants to kill people and shit and you're the crown you're the king's tutor so you go and like read books with them and you like teach him stuff philosophize but you're basically his professor okay
1: and I'm gonna and guess I'm you... falling in love with, with the king. <laughs> and it's very yeah. confusing. Very, yeah, very confusing. yeah, you're
0: you're like attracted to the king right. and you're like right. I'm but I'm a man and he's a man. Like what's with right. this? Like what do you do with all your feelings?
1: And this is uh, a time before that was maybe legal. <laughs> um I guess uh I s I guess I live into my old age with those feelings. Uh Wow. And yearn quietly for the king. Really, and then and then one day I just let my passions loose, and it turns <laughs> out the king feels the same way about me. And then luckily, the king oh. is a woman, so it's not against <laughs> it's not against God's plan. Uh, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, what it's if? All kosher.
1: <laughs> here's the thing about them being identical twins like that. Yeah, is uh, what if the story had gone differently and the it's fucking tutors in love with the actual king
0: the real and, one the, and the confesses actual his,
1: one. yeah and confesses his love to him one day
0: that would have been a better show i that, i totally, be more. yeah that'd be a
1: very interesting story to me
0: yeah yeah but you know what's actually this show the reason why i love this show is because like tammy this woman playing the king right like uh-huh. her queen situation like that queen is like in love with the king even after the king says like i'm actually like she like takes off her top at one point goes this is the reason why i couldn't (laughs) i couldn't (laughs) sleep with you every night like there's like a scene like that and like shows her like her cleavage Uh and the queen is like you know but the queen still loves the the lady king like there's this very intense like lesbian attraction coming from the queen and even with the chiun guy even though he's like in love with the king and is like confused like he has like there's like no holds barred he like fully smooches the king like believing he's a man like this is like a very like trans queer kind of show i loved the whole like flexibility and the Gender swapping and uh, the it, it was like queer in all directions, and that's why right. I love this show because it was like innovative in that way, so yeah, it was an intense ride, okay yeah, 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 and I guess yeah, there are some predictable factors here, you know, and they're kind of time old gimmicks, too you see them in like cinema a lot, right well all, all i mean films.
1: you know the they wrote in the Bible, which is uh there's nothing new under the sun, mm. And that was in the Bible, which was written six thousand years ago.
0: Mhm. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Or
1: two thousand years, whatever. I don't know.
0: <laughs> like, yeah, who cares? It doesn't One
1: thousand years, whatever, man.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Although Ecclesiastes, I think. Years
1: ago. Well no, Ecclesiastes dates dates back to like five or six thousand years ago.
0: Is that but, your favorite uh, book in the Bible?
1: It's a beautiful book.
0: Very poetic, yeah.
1: It is. Um I took, when I was in college, I took a literature of the Bible class. Oh. And, uh, you know, just studying the Bible. And I grew up in basically a Japanese Buddhist uh, cult. Uh, so I'd never read the Bible before then. It was like very.
0: You're Irish. You're, you, well, you, Irish you didn't grow up reading Irish Catholic kind of texts or none of that? No. My mom's Jewish. Ah.
1: And so they met in the 70s. Uh, In this Buddhist, yeah, they weren't hippies. They just it was seventies. People joined cults a lot. Yeah.
0: Uh.
1: But yeah, it was um. You know, uh, so it was my first time ever being exposed to the Bible really in a serious way, other than through pop culture. Yeah. And so I was surprised. Book of Solomon's dirty. Like it's just a dirty poem. It's a long Mm. sex poem.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Solomon was a sex fiend. Yeah,
1: he was. Yeah, he liked to dip his wick. <laughs>
0: it's gross! <laughs> it's disgusting. He liked to dip his wick, and he liked to like propose insane yeah. things like let's cut up this baby, and maybe we yeah. could have a, one half and the other half. Yeah, yeah. He was a wild guy.
1: Solomon liked to get his dick wet. <laughs>
0: and that's what made him so wise it did yeah every time he 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 dipped his wick he was getting more wisdom yeah it was actually the power of the lady's pussy juice that was giving him the wisdom every time he did it yeah
1: think about it you look at the bible there's one character who's renowned for his wisdom Uh and it's the same guy who just openly liked to get laid (laughs) and like wasn't ashamed of it just like talked about it like most people do
0: yeah, yeah, that's true.
1: But yeah, especially that generation of, of Irish-Americans are very, it's a very tough, very, like, uh, very tough guy mentality, and it, it's hard for me to relate to. You know, I mean, I, I, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: I quit drinking in, when I was living in Queens, and I, I went to a lot of, like, meetings uh, of a, a program of sobriety that I belonged to. With mm-hmm. a lot of older Irish men in, in, uh, mm. but I mean, I'm talking about like 60s and 70s, like, you know, like yeah. elderly. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember once, uh, I had to talk to a group about my story, my journey.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, uh, as you do. And I just shared about like how I was feeling at the time. Like I was in a very like weird mo- like emotional space and I was talking about it and just kind of like listen to these uh old Irish guys like kind of grappling with opening up emotionally in this in this meeting which is something they didn't normally do and this lady came up to me afterwards she's like you know a lot of these old guys like to pretend they don't have emotions but they do (laughs) (laughs) I was like yeah we just all had an hour together like of talking
0: yeah we gotta let people feel we gotta let men feel even if they're 80 70 years old if they are able to feel a little bit like i think i think that's important that's like we're letting humanity reintegrate back into their subconscious well there's
1: also a lot of like it's interesting about that generation is there's a lot of just trauma response involved too because you know like people now baby boomers who are 70s or 80s you know they were raised by a generation that had just come back from war yeah. and it was it was a generation of untreated veterans with serious mm-hmm. issues who felt uncomfortable discussing it with anyone other than other veterans so yeah. it's like yeah. they would go to the vfw hall once a week get drunk and like talk about their experiences yeah. but then have to fucking go back to their families and lo- yeah. like try to live a normal life and have a job and a career and all that.
2: Yeah.
1: And those Irish guys, I mean, you know, I think it's easy to forget that the Troubles didn't end until the 90s, right? Mm. Mm. And there was a lot, I mean, a lot of stories I would hear in those rooms about like, just, my, I was in Belfast with my brother and yeah. we left a pub and a sniper shot him dead. You know like shit like that and it's just like you know growing up either first generation coming from that from that environment where it's just a, you're under a lot of pressure all the time like you never know might be in a dublin marketplace and a bomb might go off like you just mm-hmm. never fucking know right. or uh you know growing up with with family that that went through that you know yeah, yeah. like the macananeas when they came over from ireland <laughs> they they the stories I heard about the the generation that lived in in Boston kind of off the yeah. boat, yeah. like they all just basically lived in a house together till they all died um uh. like you know like very like weird and not what we consider in america healthy uh family behavior um
0: a lot of dysfunction
1: a lot of dysfunction, and the same with the Jewish family. Because they all came, like, basically, they fled uh, the Cossacks. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and then I found out recently, my sister did a whole genealogy deep dive, and there's, like, a chunk of our family that were Choctaw, and they had to walk the Trail of Tears, because uh, wow. this British family, like, married into them, and it was a whole fucking story. Um, so you,
0: you're, you like, a web of intergenerational trauma. Like
1: Basically, nobody wanted us. Like, <laughs> we're just fucking... <laughs> like constantly fleeing in terror um yeah uh but yeah you know, i mean it's like whatever but i mean we all come from we all come from that fucking background one way or another
0: we do we do uh, yeah. yeah yeah
1: you know like nobody so anyway there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of that to a lot of like suppressing emotion because it's just like fucking not growing up in an environment that's healthy
0: that even allowed for that
1: that even allowed for it
0: right that would even hear it out right like you know when you're looking at a mother who's like you know working class and trying to make ends meet with a shitty father who's toxic and drunk all the time Mm -hmm. try going to that mother and complaining about a school bully try just try just go ahead go ahead and try see if she'll hear you out you know
1: but when I was a kid we thought Vietnam vets and their PTSD was funny because, like, we just knew a ton of them. It's just like they were members of the community, and it's like you'd hear about a guy who fucking... Right. We'd, we heard, there was a guy who married an, an Asian lady, and then oh, he would just God. wake up in the middle of the night with night terrors and start hitting her, and it's just oh, like... Fucking God and fucking you know, God. It's yeah. like, what else can you do but laugh? Because if yeah. you don't laugh, yeah. you're going to go crazy.
0: Yeah, yeah, because it's so weird. It's so bizarre yeah. that it's like the nervous response laughter, the I don't know what the fuck laugh- laughter, right? And, you know, this is another big part of my, my dissertation research, which is like I kind of equate laughing with crying,
2: mm-hmm. you know?
0: It's like the same kind of, the same orifices of your face sort of open up and the same mm-hmm. kind of, you know, um, brain chemistry is lit up when you're laughing and or crying, which is that their attention release it's a release response of tension. And, um, yeah, it's like, in a sense, that all that laughing you guys did was technically crying. Yeah. <laughs> technically sobbing. Yeah.
1: Right. Especially when you're a kid, you don't know what the fuck's going on. Yeah. But this is a country that loves to send people off to war and then fucking give them the not Heisman not as soon as they come back.
0: And then not deal with it. And then not yeah. deal with it. You know, like, we, in like, looking at the future... We got to deal with the Middle East and Mm -hmm. all all that shit that's going to come out of that. Like not only our veterans, but also people who are Middle Eastern American. Mm
2: -hmm. And then
0: the people who are in the Middle East currently and what they're dealing with, the aftermath of all of this. Right. Like all of that. That's like the next thing that we're going to be dealing. I mean, we're currently still we're dealing with it as we speak. But yeah. Yeah, that's something I mean, that we're, we're all going to come to terms with. We got to come to terms with that.
1: Grace, yeah. this is the best first date I've been on in a long time. So,
0: <laughs> this is fun. Don't be sorry. Thanks for your time, Liam. This is great.
1: Next time I'll take you to a podcast I like. Uh... <laughs> no, this is great. Thank you.